Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Head of Economic and Market Strategy at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $155 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Whether or not you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, you have to give the reigning NFC champions credit for consistently pulling victory from the jaws of defeat. Consecutive comebacks from 10-point halftime deficits being the latest example. As the NFL regular season winds down and the holidays approach, the U.S. economy continues to show similar resilience. Coming into 2023, the consensus, including us, was expecting the most anticipated recession ever. In fact, that was the title of last year's Outlook podcast. But as inflation has cooled throughout the year and the labor market finally started to roll over, the soft landing course has grown louder. Coming off the fifth best quarterly GDP print in the 21st century, excluding the pandemic years, recession seems a far off outcome. But if there's one thing we've learned from following the economy through the lens of the Clearbridge Anatomy of a Recession program, it's that macro momentum can evaporate faster than ELF can make snowballs. To help make the case for macro caution in the year ahead, joining me on our seventh annual Outlook podcast is Josh Jamner. Josh is an investment strategy analyst, my co-author, and a regular presenter of ClearBridge's AOR program, not to mention a rising talking head with the media. Josh, welcome back to the booth and just try not to steal my thunder too much in 2024. All kidding aside, we'll walk you through our base case for the economy and equity markets in my favorite podcast of the year, ClearBridge Economic Outlook 2024, the year of lagged effects. Josh, it's really great to have you in the booth here. It's been 12 months. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be back. And uh, I, I wasn't kidding when I say that this is my favorite podcast of the year because it talks about something that's near and dear to both of our hearts, which is the macro and market outlook. And then we can look into our crystal ball and make some prognostications about next year. And we're going to start off with a tradition that we do every time when we have this podcast. We're going to talk about a song title that we expect will encapsulate the environment in 2024. And I listened to the podcast last year, and you went with Hard to Handle by the Grateful Dead or the Black Crows. What was behind that title, and what are you thinking for 2024? So back then, it was uh, really focusing on the Fed, if I recall. I listened to it as well, although I'm not blanking on it. But I think it was that the Fed had been rapidly raising rates, and that was going to be a lot for the economy to digest. As we look forward to 2024, and, and this song title works both for the economic and market outlook, as well as you were talking about the Eagles. I'm a Jets fan, unfortunately, and the Jets consistently Oof. snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And so the song title that is applicable for being a Jets fan and also as we look ahead for the year ahead, for me is It Ain't Easy, which is a David Bowie song off of the album Ziggy good Stardust. Pick. It has a very long title. I'm, I'm abbreviating the Ziggy Stardust part of that. But I think it's a it's a good pick in terms of, you know, we, we need to have a little bit of humility as we think about our outlook for the year ahead. This was the most anticipated recession coming into this year. Obviously, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen given the strength of the economy. And as we look forward to the year ahead, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think we're going to be seeing continued conflicting signals in, in data uh, from markets. And I think it's just going to be a tough year. I don't want to steal your thunder with some of the things I, I think you're probably going to talk about a little bit later. What about you? What is your song that you think best describes where we're headed next year? Well, last year I went with Tom Petty. I will not back down. 
Unfortunately, I started singing the lyrics on last year's podcast and remembered why I'm in finance and not in the music industry. Probably lost about half the listeners when I started doing that. So I'm not going to go down that road again. So Tom Patty's off the table, even though I could have gone with The Waiting. But I think Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer is actually a really good song for 2024. I know I'm a New Jersey guy, so I kind of had to go with the hometown band there. But if you listen to the refrain there, it's we're halfway there, living on a prayer. It talks about perseverance. So the economy has persevered in light of the strongest tightening cycle we've seen in the Fed since the early 1980s. But the key is that we're not at the finish line. As we've written about, we think the next three quarters is going to be the crux of this cycle's climb, the hardest part of the climb where all the most difficult moves are concentrated. And we really think that the lagged effects of Fed tightening is going to become apparent as we move into the first half of next year. So I'm going with Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. But that brings us up to, obviously, what we're going to talk about on this podcast, which is the economy. We continue to have a base case of recession until we could get through the next two to three quarters to see what the full effects of Fed tightening is. But Josh, I want to talk to you first and foremost about what informs our decision on the economy, the, the Clearbridge Recession Risk Dashboard. What do you see in there? At the moment, it continues to be pretty solidly red. So the dashboard is our North Star, right? It helps guide where we think we're going as we try to assess the health of the economy right now. And red meaning recession. Yes, thank you. It's a, it's a traffic light analogy. Green is good. Yellow means take your foot off the gas. Red means it's time to hit the brakes. Of the 12 indicators right now, nine of them are red and three of them are yellow. We did have a little bit of improvement. It was about a six-month stretch of, of 10 red to yellow. And just last month, the end of last month, retail sales improved from red to yellow. Now, it was kind of interesting as, as we wrote about in the blog when we talked about this, we thought there's a decent chance that retail sales could roll over and go back red at some point in the future. And the subsequent print this month was that retail sales slipped back. It's not in red ter territory yet. You know, I think that we're... There's more to see in terms of retail sales needing to worsen in order for it to go back towards red. But ultimately, the dashboard continues to be in red territory. It's gotten a little bit better beneath the surface. I think things that we're, we're looking at that have shown a little bit of improvement, again, no signal changes yet, but, but showing a little bit of strength are like credit spreads, truck shipments have picked up as we move into the holiday season. But we are still solidly in recessionary territory. And, and while things are improving, that really informs our view that we think the balance of risks are tilted towards recession over the next 12 months. And let's not forget, right, the long Longest lead time between an overall red signal and the start of a recession was going into 1990s downturn. That red signal came 13 months prior. And we had a deep red signal at the end of 1989. Dashboard got better in the first half of 1990 and then ultimately worsened as that recession materialized. So this is not uncharted territory for the dashboard overall. No, not at all. Now, obviously, something that's really dictating the fate of the economy and this expansion is inflation. Interest rates, the Fed, all intertwined with one another. We're going to have an FOMC meeting coming up here in the next couple of weeks, maybe the most anticipated hold ever. I don't know if that's uh, the best analogy for it, but wh what are you seeing on those fronts? Well, to start with the Fed, because I think that's easy. I think the Fed's done. We could just end the podcast here. Go. I, I, I would call echo this. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that the Fed is done. As we look ahead, the first interest rate cut is priced in Fed fund futures all the way out in June. And that doesn't seem too unreasonable to me, and I'll talk about that in, in a second as we get into the inflation outlook. But what does seem a little bit potentially mispriced is that if you look past June, over the next six, seven months, there are four rate cuts priced into Fed fund futures. 100 basis all, points. Yeah, all the way out to, to basically January of 2025. And that seems like a fairly aggressive path of cutting. 
And the reason for that, in my view, and the reason for that, I think, is that it, while inflation has been coming down, we are not out of the woods with regard to inflation. The last mile is the hardest. Absolutely. So core PCE will print on Thursday. We're recording this on today's Tuesday. Consensus is for a, a two-tenths of a percent increase on a month-over-month basis. That will bring the year-over-year print to three and a half percent. Now, if we get if we meet consensus, right? If we get that zero point two sequential print, the three month moving average will be two and a half percent. The six month moving average, these are annualized numbers. The six month moving average annualized will be two point six percent. That isn't quite enough that we're gonna you know declare mission accomplished and throw a parade or anything. But I think that is very consistent with a Fed hold. We have not necessarily returned inflation all the way back to the two percent target, but we are within spitting distance on kind of a recent trend over the last three to six months. And that is very different than where we were, let's just say, six months ago. If we were recording this at mid-year, the three-month moving average was 3.8. The six-month moving average was 4.5. The year over year was even higher than that at the time. That was a very different backdrop. And that was when the Fed was still hiking and thinking about, okay, maybe there's a hike or two still to come, but we're not even close to the end back six months ago. Fast forward to today, and inflation has come down pretty meaningful. The Fed has, has taken their foot off, off the brakes, really. And ultimately, I think that as we move through the next six months from here, if we get continued inflation in this kind of two and a half-ish range, it's going to move up and down. We're going to have hot months and cold months. The data is can be a little bit noisy at times. But as we kind of lap some of the, the tougher comparisons, we're going to have some easier comparisons moving forward. I think if the Fed can get more confident that inflation is settling back towards something like that 2% target, ultimately that should open the door for them to, to do a little bit of cutting, maybe not a full 100 basis points in the second half of next year. Year, but they think about uh, about policy in, in terms of real interest rates, so interest rates less the level of inflation. And while we have argued in a number of the papers we've written that they should be that, that we should really focus on inflation expectations, which have been one more, year inflation swap, which which has been more stable. I think it's pretty logical to think that as inflation itself comes down from seven to six to five to four, you know, potentially down below three at some point, that in order to keep policy just at a steady level as inflation comes out. They're effectively tightening, right? Right, because, because inflation is getting lower, but your policies rates the same. So, exactly. de facto tightening, yeah. It's de facto tightening. So, I think there's there's a strong case to be made for a couple of cuts, but I think that's maybe more like two or three than four, uh, in that, in, especially in that first six-month period. And I think part of the reason for that is that the Fed is going to have to be on guard for a second wave of inflation. Strategus, which is a, a macro research boutique that we talked to a fair amount, uh, they did a study of developed market economies going all the way back as early as they could. So it started in 1900 for a number of countries. Some started in the 20s. Ultimately, when they added it all up, it was over 2,000 years of history they analyzed between all these different countries. And they came up that there had been 62 inflation episodes over those 2,000 combined years. Larger inflation episodes. Yes, yes, larger inflation episodes. Of those 62, just eight or 13% were a single wave of inflation where inflation went up, it came down, it went away, and everyone lived happily ever after. So odds are we're getting a second wave of inflation. Absolutely. 87% of the time, inflation comes with a second wave. That's in the U.S. We've had three kind of major inflation episodes over the last roughly 100 years. All three of them were multiple waves of inflation. And I think the Fed knows that, and it really informs the Fed generally and the Fed today in particular. Chair Powell has talked about how he wants to be known as the next Paul Volcker no one at the Fed wants to be known as the next Arthur Burns. In fact, if you go back about 18 months ago, Powell, during his uh, semi-annual congressional testimony, and I'm going to quote here, I think he, referring to Volcker, was one of the great public servants of the era, the greatest public servant, of the economic public servant of the era. I don't want to say that, that Powell, I don't want to put words in his mouth whether Paul Volcker is his hero, his idol, 
you know, they knew each other, that they, they, they kind of operated in similar circles, but he certainly looks up to Paul Volcker and wants to make sure that we take care of this wave of inflation and don't have that that second wave. And well, look, I'm going to say this. I think the Fed wants to go down the path of least embarrassment, right? Path A, shallow recession. You get inflation back down to 2% on a consistent basis. Path B, you get this second wave of inflation. You get a hike a lot more, cause a much deeper recession. Again, remember you remembered as Burns rather than Volcker. I think it's a pretty easy choice from the Fed standpoint. Yeah. And I think all of this is is important. The reason we're talking about it is if we were, you know, we sat, sat here a year ago, 12 months ago, and talked about what our outlook for 2023 was, a big piece of it was this had the potential to be a policy-induced recession, right? Like everything you were just talking about, the Fed is going to choose the path of least resistance and ultimately cause a recession because that was the less bad of two outcomes when you're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place if you're the Fed. But obviously, we haven't had a recession so far. The Fed has taken rates up by 525 basis points in less than two years. But Jeff, why do you think we have haven't had a recession yet. Why are we sitting here 12 months later? And, and as you said, it's the fifth best quarter of economic growth in the 21st century outside of the pandemic. Well, it comes back to the title of the podcast, the year of lagged effects, right? If you look at every persistent hiking cycle since 1958, and you highlight the ones that started in the middle or the end of an expansion, the average length of time between that first rate hike and the start of a recession was 23 months. Now, again, it may feel like the Fed's been hiking for an eternity, but it was only around 20 months ago where that first hike came into play. So we're not even at that average yet. But also, you alluded to this in your comment about inflation, is that the Fed had a really big hole they had to dig themselves out of before they actively started to slow the economy. So as you alluded to, if the Fed funds rate is below inflation and the neutral rate, which is around 50 basis points, the Fed's accommodative. They're helping the economy grow. If you're above those levels, the Fed's restrictive. They're slowing the economy. And 50 basis points real. 50 basis points real. And using a one-year inflation swap because people make decisions based on what they expect prices to be, not what they have been. The Fed was arguably the most accommodative ever in March of 2022. So they had to do a lot of hiking, a big hole to dig themselves out of, and they didn't get to restrictive territory until the end of last year. So they've only been actively slowing the economy for about a year, right? So it shouldn't be a surprise why we haven't had a recession quite yet. But also, I think another underappreciated element is that there was somebody tugging on the other side of that rope, which was making Fed policy not as restrictive as it should have been, which is Congress. The budget deficit between the summer of last year and the summer of this year grew by a percent of GDP of almost 5%, which is over a trillion dollars. So that's negated a lot of what the Fed has been trying to do. But with the debt ceiling agreement that went into place back in September, there's caps on discretionary spending over the next couple of years so that tailwind to economic activity, which has been negating what the Fed's been trying to do, is no longer there. So that's why we think that the next three quarters are going to be so important because the economy is going to genuinely feel the effects of what the Fed has been trying to accomplish. And if we can get through the next three quarters, again, we're going to feel a lot better about that soft landing narrative, but we're, we're not there quite yet. And that three quarters, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to your point that we only kind of entered restrictive policy territory around the end of last year, if you think there's traditional lags to monetary policy of anywhere from six to 18 months, right, that middle of next year gets you to that kind of 18-month horizon. Certainly, it could be a little bit longer than than the long end of the range. It's on a precise estimate on six to 18 months, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Now, as you're looking at the health of the economy, it's not just you know, well, we haven't had a recession because the lags from monetary tightening have kicked in or fiscal policy was expansionary. How are you thinking about really the kind of the key things here, the health of the labor market, the health of the consumer? Well, look, the labor market, if you look at the surface numbers, they look great, right? But if you look underneath the surface, there's some 
signs of concern, right? There's cracks in the foundation. Now, if you look at leading labor indicators, whether it's our job sentiment indicator on the dashboard, which looks at the conference board's consumer confidence survey, how many people are saying jobs are plentiful minus those that are saying jobs are hard to get, this has rolled over very aggressively over the last 18 months. And every time it's rolled like this, you've had a recession, which is why it's in our dashboard. So that's one leading indicator that we're looking at pretty closely. Also, if you look at weekly hours, they've been dropping for about two years. If you look at temporary worker trends, they've dropped in eight out of the last nine months. And again, if you think about it from a company perspective, when you're cutting costs, you're trying to preserve margins, you're going to reduce hours worked and their temporary employment first, before you let go of a full-time employee. Because if you need that employee back, much more expensive proposition to hire someone and, and retrain them. Also, you've seen a lot of negative payroll revisions this year. Back in March, you had uh, payroll revisions of about 306,000 on the preliminary report that you saw. But every initial release of payrolls in the first half of the year, that first number that came out was not the number. It was revised downward. And in the latest release that we got for October, you saw 100,000 negative revisions for the prior two months. So you usually see this at economic inflection points, which tells us that when we look back in six or 12 months, maybe the economy wasn't growing and creating the jobs that we thought that we have today. Uh, the last thing I'll mention on the labor front is that um, if you look at the percent of private industries that are adding jobs, the latest release that we got for October is only 52%, which is the lowest that we've seen since April of 2020, right? So Broad breadth of labor creation is a good thing. When it gets more narrow, again, not a sign for this to continue to happen as we move into 2024. And that's really important because at the end of the day, labor income is the biggest source of spending power for the consumer. And it's really the health of the consumer that's been holding the economy afloat, right? With that really strong GDP quarter, you've had a series of strong consumption numbers. I talked about how retail sales was actually improving. One of the metrics we look at is called aggregate weekly payrolls. It basically takes the change in the number of people working by the number of hours they're working, multiplies that by the weight, the change in the wage, and says, well, are you on an aggregate basis? You know, is the economy, workers across the country have more income or less income? And what is that growing? And if you plot that series against consumption and GDP, it's two lines that essentially sit on top of each other. We go above or below for short periods of time. People are borrowing more or less you're getting back during COVID, you're getting government transfer payments to, to individuals that's sort of helping support consumption. But ultimately, the health of the labor market is kind of key for consumption. What is your outlook as we move into 2024 for the health of the consumer, given that the labor market is showing some cracks? This is where, you know, I, I think it's an important area to, to explore because the consumer has been rock solid, no doubt about it. But there's signs of balance sheet fatigue as you look on the horizon. So, if you look at delinquency rates, whether it's credit card delinquencies, autos, other credit, even mortgage delinquencies are rising in this red-hot housing market that we have, they're all moving higher at the moment. And there's two ways to look at that. We're going back to the levels that we saw prior to the pandemic, so we're just getting some sort of normalization. Or this is going to be a sign that the consumer is not going to be as strong as what we've seen. And traditionally, when they all move in tandem with each other higher— a recession is the outcome. And let's not forget, student loan repayments just began in October. That's going to affect anywhere from 20 to 25 million Americans. And the one thing that I think is important to note that the rise in delinquencies has happened with the strong labor market. 
So if the labor market starts to weaken from here, again, it's not hard to see a situation where the consumer is going to take a step down. And we're going to get some a good view on that when we get some of these holiday sales numbers here coming up. So, you know, I, I think the consumer is really critical to this hard landing, soft landing narrative. And there's some signs that the consumption that we've witnessed may not be the consumption that we'll see in early 2024. Now, we've laid out kind of our base case for a recession here open to the soft landing happening if we can get through the next couple of quarters. What are the risks to the thesis? I know we talk about this on pretty much a daily basis, but for the listeners, Josh, what are some risks? I'll give you two, and I I could probably give you 10 if I wanted. But I think one that you you talked about how fiscal spending, how Congress has been sort of going against the Fed, right? The Fed's been trying to tighten. Congress has been spending more money. Our view as base case is that the fiscal impulse, as you mentioned, is going to lessen or dampen in 2024. But I think there's a risk that you know, the timing of how money is spent through the congressional budgeting process is very uh, quirky, for lack of a better word. You know, we have the, um, here in New York, they're, you know, replacing the tunnel under the Hudson River for the, for the trains. You know, some of that spending was allocated years ago, and it's just, you know, the money's shovels are just hitting the ground, or I guess it's not a shovel underwater, but whatever it is, uh, it's just kind of, you know, being spent today. And so the timing of that spending can be a little bit uneven. And so there's some risk that there's, you know, some lags to, to that fiscal impulse. I think there's also the potential, and I'm not holding my breath, it doesn't seem like Congress in D.C. can can really get much done, but there's a chance that they decide to circumvent those spending caps, right? That the spending caps that were part of the debt ceiling deal ultimately get pushed to the side in a future deal, which, you know, the history of Congress is they make a deal and then they, you know, rip it up the next time they need to make a deal. And so that's one kind of risk of the thesis is that ultimately the the fiscal impulse could be a little bit larger than we anticipate in 2024. I think a second one that's in a very different vein is that, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, we were talking about how, you know, one of the ways we could have been wrong anticipating a a policy of, you know, a, a monetary policy induced recession is, well, there's a chance that the U.S. economy is less sensitive to interest rates than than we previously believed. And I think that there's some evidence of that being true. The question is really how much. But when you look at individuals, you know, back when when interest rates were at generational lows, many people took advantage of that and, you know, locked in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And those we talk a lot about now, you know, people are stuck in their homes or they're trapped in their homes. They don't want to sell their house because they, they'd have to, you know, in purchasing a new home, the new mortgage would be at a seven, eight percent interest rate, and they might have sub three. Companies engaged in similar behavior, right? Back in 2020, 2021, there was a large, you know, deluge of of, of debt issuance, both high quality and junk bond issuance. Yeah, junk bond, I think two thirds of that index refinanced in 2020 and 2021. And so those companies locked in, you know, low rates for anywhere from three to five to seven years. And and at some point, that that bill will come due, and the, that debt will have to be rolled over. But as we think about, well, what's kind of the 2024 outlook, you know, in a, in a quote unquote normal world, you would have said, okay, the Fed's raised interest rates is going to have a major impact. But with so many companies, individuals, et cetera, having locked in low rates, the sort of the bite that comes with each interest rate increase from the Fed could be a little bit lower than we believe. And, and again, this is something we were talking about a year, year and a half ago. What about you, Jeff? What are your kind of risks to the thesis from the economic perspective? I would say inflation normalizes faster than consensus expects, and it allows the Fed to genuinely pivot without fear of having that second wave of inflation and avoid a hard landing, right? It's come down. You know, a lot of the disinflation that we've seen was from the supply side. Goods inflation has basically been negative or zero for a long period of time. So that continues to be an anchor, bringing down core PCE. But also, if you get some demand-driven disinflation, a slower economy, economy goes to below trend growth, again, if core PCE gets to two, 
or maybe even below two on a three or six month annualized basis, maybe the Fed can feel much more confident in creating a cutting environment that can keep the expansion moving forward. So I think that's one risk to the thesis that we've laid out. I think the other is that the you have an immaculate slackening, as I would call it, with job openings being at about 9.6 million, which is about 2.6 million more than what we saw prior to the pandemic. Maybe job openings move lower and you just don't get that traditional layoff cycle that you see when job openings move lower in other types of economic environments. So that's a way, again, that you don't see the layoffs, you don't have a recession, and maybe the Fed can start to cut rates and feel better about the situation. So I think, obviously, there's multiple ways, uh, and probably about 10 more, as you mentioned, on how our thesis could be wrong. Initial jobless claims are back down to around 200,000. That's a really healthy number. That's our economic canary in the coal mine. Not in a recession quite yet, but if you look at continuing claims, it's up 25% on a year-over-year basis. So while people aren't laying off their employees, people are finding it more difficult to actually get hired into another job. It's taken them longer to do so. So we've talked about the economy at a pretty long length here. Let's talk about the market implications. And right now, there's some pretty lofty embedded expectations for 2024. So Josh, talk to me a little bit about what are the numbers embedded and and, and ultimately, what is that pricing? Yeah, so I would say that a soft landing is fully priced in at this point. EP earnings growth for 2024 is around 11.4% when I looked this morning. If you look out to 2025, EPS growth, 12%. So- that are, pretty lofty numbers. Those are, those are pretty big numbers, and and it it's not to say that they can't come true, but it's very consistent with you know a soft landing, or frankly even better than a soft landing scenario. And so if the economy plays out in a you know a, a sort of moderate to upside scenario, certainly if we avoid a recession, that's already priced into earnings expectations. There's not going to be you know higher substantial positive revisions to earnings expectations on the back of a better economic outlook. So then you sort of think about from a market return perspective, okay, if earnings expectations are already there, what are, what are multiples going to look like? And we're, we're trading right around 18 and a half times. I think it was 18.6 when I, when I pulled it up this morning, next 12 months expectations. If you just say, let's assume that the earnings growth numbers are right, when we're sitting here 12 months from now, right, let's just say we had the 11 and a half roughly earnings growth in 24, mm-hmm. the market's still pricing 12% in 2025, and stocks are dead flat, we'll be trading at 16 and a half times 2025 earnings. Right? Yeah. That's where we are today. That's not wild, but again, there's not a lot of kind of downside protection there. And, and it particularly or or pot- think, potential upside. Or potential upside. If you think like, look, an average year, stocks go up roughly 8%, you add 8% to the market today, you keep those earnings expectations we were just talking about as, you know, as if they happen, all of a sudden we go from that 16 and a half to almost 18 times. It's in the high 17s. And again, if you thought that that was going to happen with a very high degree of certainty, that's probably not unreasonable. But there's very little cushion if those earnings expectations start to slip. And it's really hard to see further upside, given that we're coming off that period of clearly above trend economic growth at 4.9% last quarter, along with cooling inflation that should really slow revenue growth. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But but what, what about margin expansion, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's that's really where kind of the rubber meets the road here is that we're in an environment where GDP is is probably cooling from elevated levels right now. Inflation has been cooling and seems likely to continue to cool. And ultimately, that should slow revenue growth, right? GDP, at the end of the day, is really sales for the country. The stock market is not the economy. We say that all the time. But the stock market's a subset of the economy, right? You strip out the government, you strip out kind of private companies, and you're left with, you know, something that looks reasonably like GDP. And 
we live in a nominal world, right? We earn, if it, whether, whether you know, company makes more money by increasing prices or by selling more units, they're making more money at the end of the day. They don't really care. So cooling inflation is a headwind to revenue growth. And at the end of the day, when revenue growth has really been driven by prices, much more so than volume over the last kind of year, year and a half. Oh, unit, unit sales are down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so ultimately, if you have a kind of a lower or slower revenue outlook, it's tough to have margin expansion and that's, I think, key. If you look out to 2024 expectations, revenue growth is in the mid-single digits, roughly 4%, while we have that 12% EPS growth. There's a lot of margin expansion built into 2024 and 2025 estimates. And I think as if that revenue growth number is right, those margin expectations look a little bit lofty. First, you have operational leverage is going to be working against you, right? As growth is slowing, you can't spread fixed costs across as many sales. And then on top of that, if you say, okay, well, pricing is coming in, right? In order for margins to expand, you need your input costs to fall faster. And while producer prices have rolled over in large part due to energy, wages are really holding up. They tend to be lagging. They're not really showing tons of sign of further easing. If you look at kind of some of the recent union contracts, they're, they're pretty big wage numbers in that baked into those. And I think that there's a risk that you don't see the margin upside in 2024. I think that's kind of where the earnings expectations are most vulnerable. The revenue expectations don't seem, seem crazy in a soft landing. It's the margin expansion that I think comes into question, particularly if a recession's avoided, those input costs might not fall as fast as expected, and then those earnings expectations might be a little bit too high. I've been talking about stocks kind of in an aggregate here, but I think one thing we've seen in the S&P 500 and in U.S. equity markets this year is a real bifurcation in markets, right? You have the Magnificent Seven and the S&P 493. And everybody else. Yeah, the S&P 493. And Jeff, I know you've spent a fair bit of time looking into what's going on. Are these seven companies really special, or is the market being a little bit overly optimistic? Or you know, how are you thinking about this? They are special. Let's not forget, they've grown their earnings and aggregate you know, over 40% year-to-date, right? I mean, they've been... It's extraordinary. Extraordinary, right? The problem is the market is, you know forecasting that to happen in perpetuity. And there's only so far or high a tree can grow, right? Um, and these are large companies at the end of the day. But in looking at the market performance, the S&P 500 is up 19%. Magnificent 7 year-to-date is up 72%. And they make up 15% of that 19% return. So they're making up around 75%, give or take, of the index's return this year, just those seven companies. The S&P 493, they're making up 4% of that 19%. The average for the, those companies is around 5.5%. After, and that's after the recent rally. It was actually negative not too long ago. So, you know, this but is... they've really, rallied to make a quarter. <laughs> they have. So it's really been a story about the haves and the have-nots. So, you know, when you're looking at the index, yes, it looks like the index is doing fine, but there's a lot more skepticism that's priced into most companies. And it's not just the S&P 500. If you look at the Russell Small Cap Index, usually when you have a bear market low since 1982... When you're following that S&P 500 bear market low, Russell 2000 is up 75% on average. When you're following the low last year, Russell 2000 index was up 2.9%. Easily the worst showing since 1982. 2.9%, barely positive. Even through today, from the low last year, Russell 2000 is up 7%. So there's a lot of negativity and skepticism that's priced into most stocks, and it's just these handful of stocks that are really 
showing the strength and really skewing what the perception is and the health of the market environment. And, and those small cap stocks tend to be much more economically sensitive, right? Those, those magnificent seven and large caps in general tend to be more kind of secular growers that that have you know more idiosyncratic drivers of, of their earnings upside. How do you think about kind of large versus small cap in a downturn, right? Typically, we think that that large generally do well in downturns, but given the embedded expectations, given that small caps have done so poorly, do you think there's a chance they hold up better? You know, if we end up having a recession and a sell-off, or, or oddly, not? yes, small caps usually start to outperform on a relative basis about two-thirds of the way through a market sell-off when you go into a recession. So they usually lead anyway. But given just the lack of optimism that's embedded into those stocks right now, I think they're going to fare a lot better than what they traditionally do. It's not to say that large caps won't outperform, but I think that delta or the difference is going to be much smaller. And we may start to see that rally into small and and mid-cap stocks earlier than what you've traditionally seen historically. I know we're coming up on time here, but I I really just want to talk about maybe two more things and then have our prognostications for next year. Historically, a recessionary sell-off in post-World War II has been 30%. There's been 12 recessions. I don't know about you, Josh, but I think this is going to be a much more mild sell-off. Again, I don't see a lot of overvaluation outside of maybe the MAG-7 average stock is pricing a lot more pessimism. I think it's going to be a shallower recession. I think it may be 15 to 20%, which is not uncommon. I want to end on on just really quickly opportunities, short-term and long-term. Very brief, from my vantage point, short-term, I think active versus passive, right? Those Magnificent Seven have huge weightings in the index. Active managers are able to sidestep some of that risk potentially to that earnings picture that's being priced in. You saw a similar dynamic in the late 90s where the cap-weighted index outperformed the equally-weighted index by a huge margin. And that was a period where you had mega cap concentration and tech leadership. And then, of course, from 2000 to 2006, equally weighted outperformed, and it was a great period for active management. So I think active management is an opportunity, given where we've seen here. Love quality, love dividend growers. They're a lot cheaper after the move that we've seen this year, and they usually outperform in a volatile environment. Josh, anything on the short term on your end? No, I'd, I'd agree with you on the, on the quality and, and dividend growers there. Okay. And then on a long-term basis, I'm going to go with the sector. Maybe you go with a style. I think energy energy may move lower if you have a recession, no doubt. But if you think about the longer-term prospects of energy, the lack of investment, the lack of supply coming online, the OPEC arrangement between the Saudis and the Russians, I see a situation where the barrel of oil is going to be a lot higher and ultimately is going to be accretive to the, the earnings of those companies. So near-term pain, but long-term gain. How about you on this, the style front? It's similar in terms of potentially some near-term, you know, relative underperformance, but long-term opportunity. I think uh, short-duration equities. I know it's a little bit unusual to talk about equities from a duration perspective, but companies that really have more cash flows shorter term relative to longer term. And the reason for that is I think the potential for, you know, structurally higher interest rates as we look out over the next five or 10 years is elevated. Yeah, if we get that second wave of inflation, you know, higher interest rate regime. So essentially value over growth on a longer-term basis. Exactly. <laughs> All right. End of the the podcast here, prognostications for the coming year. Last year, we both said that the S&P 500 would be over 4,000, so we were right on that. CPI would be 3.1%. It's right at that point. So I took the over, you took the under. We're going to call that a wash since we don't know that number. See see where the next print comes in. And our best sectors were wrong with energy (laughs) and healthcare. Right in the middle of the pack this year. So the questions this year, um, the market return, and by market, I mean S&P 500, in 2024, 8% is the long-term average since 1928. 
You going? You're over or under that? I'll, I'll take the under. I think it's going to be a year with some choppiness in the beginning and a rally in the end, but I do think the under is probably going to be the likely outcome. So we're both on the same front there. All right, consensus expects the 10-year treasury to settle in at 3.74%, higher or lower? I'll take lower. Ooh, we're on the same page here. This is I don't know if I like this. I'm going to take the lower as well. With recession as a base case, likely going to be lower than 3.74. In fairness, we do talk twice a day. We do. At least we do. so. <laughs> Best style box in the U.S. next year? I'll go large value. Large value. Interesting call. I'm, since the small caps are embedding a lot of pessimism and they send the lead coming out the other side, I'm going to go with small value. Oh, I know. Interesting I know. Interesting that neither of us ended up on the growth side of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> Last one. What's the most underappreciated, unknown, unknown? Which is unknown definitionally speaking, but if you had to pick one. I'll go with the second wave of inflation. You know, I think there's it's just not priced at all, right? There, there's very, very, very low odds in Fed fund futures that the Fed's going to have to hike any further. And it, you know, cumulatively, it's sort of under 5% probability. I think there's probably something in the 10 to 15% chance that we end up having a second wave of inflation. And particularly from a portfolio construction perspective, as you're thinking about managing risk, I think trying to, you know, while it's not necessarily an unknown unknown, we've talked about it here on the podcast, I think it's just sort of an underappreciated risk that people talk about and very quickly dismiss. No one's positioned for it. And if it ends up being that the Fed, you know, sees inflation come back, we need to hike one or two more times or, or potentially even more next year. The market is not positioned for that at all. That would be a very rude awakening uh, for a lot of equities. What, what about for you? I'd say issues in private credit. It's kind of an opaque market. You know, it's anywhere from 1.3 to 1.6 trillion. By comparison, the junk market high yield is 1.4 trillion. So it's actually grown into a, a genuine asset class that can have some economic ramifications. And right now you've seen bankruptcies rise dramatically, but credit spreads are well-behaved and that's not a relationship you usually see. So I'm thinking some of these bankruptcies are in the private credit space that aren't being picked up by traditional metrics. So, you know, I think given the fact that the 10-year treasury is up 300 basis points from two years ago, usually you have some sort of accident at 150 or 200 basis points. I think there's going to be an accident and it may ultimately be private credit. And we don't know what type of impact that's going to have on the economy, but it's certainly going to have one. Well, look, we've covered a lot today. I know this is my favorite podcast of the year. We went a little bit long here, but we, there's, a lot always to, do. there's a lot to talk about. And hopefully we'll, we'll do better than one and one uh, on the questions that we did for 2023. But Josh, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your perspective here with the listeners. So thank you for, for coming into the booth. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. Look forward to hopefully doing it sooner than next year, but at, at the very least next year this time. And thank you everybody for tuning in. I hope everybody has a safe and healthy holiday season. Happy New Year. And we hope that you'll join us for more podcasts in 2024. If you have any questions, comments, and suggestions, you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of November 28th, 2023, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.